There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Matthew Bocci. Matt Bocci is a survivor of devastating loss, emotional and psychological trauma, and sexual assault. After his father, John lost his life during the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. Matt began speaking in front of high school audiences throughout the greater New York City area, delivering a message of hope and perseverance. The awestruck reception that Matt received led him to write his memoir, Sway, which is the first story told by a child of 9-11 victims. Matt is in long-term recovery with plans to continue writing and speaking about inspiration and resilience. Matthew Bocci, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be here. So when so many people ask about 9-11, they always start on that day, as if that's the day the universe started. Let's start with your parents. How did they meet? What did they do professionally after they were married? And how many kids did they have? Uh, so my dad and my mom met. Uh, my dad actually was working at a law firm. Um, initially, he wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, he was working in the mailroom. My mom was a secretary, and they met there. Um, within about two years, they were engaged and married. Actually, they got engaged at Windows on the World. And um, my mom, after she got married, they got married and started having kids. She was a homemaker, and um, my dad worked uh, in finance, and um, he would go from pretty much one firm to the next, like advancing in his career. Uh, but on, at his passing, on his passing, he worked at Cannon Fitzgerald. Um, and uh, I am the oldest of four boys. And for the significance of Windows of the World, which you mentioned, for those of us not in the greater tri-state area, just let our listeners and, and viewers know what that is or was and where it is. Yeah. So Windows on the World was on the 106th floor uh, and I think 107 too of the North Tower um, at the World Trade Center. Uh, my dad actually worked on the 105th floor, so obviously um, he would be there all the time. And uh, so it was just pretty eerie in a sense that they got engaged there and then, you know, he would spend his final moments alive there. So you were nine years old on September 11th, 2001. That day was a Tuesday. It was a school day. how that morning start? Did you usually see your dad before he left for work? And did you see him that morning? Uh, no, I, I I did not normally see my dad. Um, there were times where uh, I'd be like half awake and I would hear him like walking out, like walking out. Um, but uh, he left so early in the morning. And so that day, so he actually would get into the city extremely early, um, work out before going to work. So he would usually get into the city at about like six o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock. Um, and uh, he actually slept in that day. Uh, so he missed his morning workout. Um, he ended up getting to work, I think, at about like, um, like closer to seven thirty. And uh, that day, I, I just had started fourth grade. Um, and I remember, I just remember vividly uh, how beautiful it was that day. You know, that's something everyone always talks about, right? Like the the pilots called it severe clear. That's how blue the sky was. Um, and uh, I just remember like that feeling. It was like, you know, the end of summer feel in the air, but like the start of like fall was coming, but it just had that nice, it was still warm. Um, and uh, shortly after, or like, yeah, shortly after like 9 a.m., um, my superintendent brought, uh, came to my classroom and basically signaled to my teacher and pointed at me and another kid in my class. Uh, my initial thought was like that I was in trouble. And he was like a nice guy, but like you didn't typically get called into his office or called out of a class unless you did something wrong. So um, I wonder what I did. And uh, they brought, he brought me into the hallway um, and, well, excuse me, my teachers came to the hallway. Uh, he went into the class. So I found that extremely bizarre. First, he's coming to the classroom I think he's going to take me out of the classroom and bring me to his office. But no, instead he goes in and talks to my classmates. Um, and my teacher was there with my, we, we were met in the hall by my brother, the other kid's younger brother and their teacher. They were both in second grade at the time. And they told the four of us that um, the plane hit our dad's building. Um, they were evacuating the tower and that he was safe. 
And that was the only thing I knew at that moment. Um, and uh, they brought us to this room that we called the game room. And it was like the room where we would sit and play computer games. And it was typically play games when it was like a half day or like the end of the school year, especially around a holiday. And it was a privilege. Uh, you know, like anyone wanted to go play computer games as a kid, right? So I found it kind of interesting. Like they brought us in there and we were there for like maybe an hour. Um, eventually they brought us back to our class um, and uh, our individual classes. And um, my classmates were looking at me very bizarrely. I, I found that extremely like concerning in the moment. Um, but then one by one, kids started getting pulled out of, out of school. And my mom decided to keep us in school for the rest of that day. Was there a point while you're in school that you knew that North Tower had collapsed and that maybe you thought or suspected or maybe knew in your heart that your dad was in all likelihood in the building and not coming home? I had no idea. I had no idea that um, the buildings came down. Um, I knew of the plane crash. And honestly, I don't even remember in that time if I knew about the second plane. Um, I might have. I honestly can't really remember. Um, but I knew only the only thing I did know for, for certain was that a plane in my dad's building. And I, I imagine it to be like a small plane. You know, I'm not like a plane enthusiast, but I knew what those small planes looked like because they would fly around my in near my town all the time because it was a little small private airport like 10 minutes away. So I envisioned it to be one of those. And I knew how big the World Trade Center was. So I imagined it was a small plane and there was just no problem. Like, you know, a couple lost lives, maybe obviously in the plane, but nothing more than that. I had no idea it was an airline or anything like that. And honestly, I don't even know what my teachers knew in the moment when they actually told us. Obviously, they were they knew as the day was going by, like what happened. Um, but yeah, that's all I knew. You know, as my viewers and listeners know, I've shared my experience on that day. You know, you and I talked last week about me being at Ground Zero and my office building was across the street and we overlooked uh, Trinity Church and down Broadway, where, which is the Canyon of Heroes, you know, where they have the World Series parades and, and all that yeah. stuff for my beloved Yankees. Yeah. And I remember hearing something that sounded like a garbage truck hit a pothole. And you know the sound here, big New York City garbage yeah. truck, a big pothole, just this bang. Yeah. And we're like, what the hell is that? And then one of my colleagues, a few minutes later, looked out the window and he said, I didn't know there was a Yankee parade today. And he saw all this paper flying paper. around, but then we saw it on fire. Mm-hmm. And we said, something's not right. And then that's when it hit the news and, you know, the, the world changed from that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was your mom or other family members able to speak with your dad before the building collapsed? Yeah. So that was um, obviously something I didn't know in the moment. Um, but my dad had called my mom. So leading up to 9-11, my dad had spoken about wanting to quit. Um, he was like emphatic about it. He kept saying repeatedly, like, I'm not happy. He had this premonition too. And he was like, I want to find my true happiness in life and my true passion in life. Um, you know, he said to her, like, I want to pay down the mortgage and like find what makes me happy. Um, and so the weekend before, same sort of things were being voiced again. Um, and he was saying things that were like quite, like really concerning to my mom. Like he, he was questioning a lot of things in life, I felt like. Um, he said to my mom, he was 38, he said how he wanted to be cremated when he died, like just random stuff that like I don't think a lot of people that, at that age are really saying. And so he had a, obviously had a bad feeling. Um, so that morning, he called her three minutes after the plane hit, so at 8.49 a.m. And I know this from looking at the stuff that my mom did keep. Uh, she wrote everything down and she kept um, transcripts of certain things. And uh, I'm glad she did. Um, three minutes after, and he said, uh, yes, he's like, Michelle, do you have the TV on? I think a small plane hit the building. And my mom goes, uh, and he said, we think a small plane hit the building. We're evac- they're trying to evacuate the tower. My mom is going in to say, John, this better not be some sort of sick joke. And as she finishes that sentence, the line cuts out. She goes into the living room. Um, her, her initial thought was she said that he, my dad liked to pull pranks. He was a jokester. And like, she's thinking he walked out and he never, ever called from his cell phone. So seeing his cell phone number come in was very odd to her. But she turns the channel and sees the news and she starts freaking out. Um, and she starts calling him, calling him. And uh, he was calling her too. And one would pick up the line and, and there was nothing but static. The other would pick up same thing repeatedly, repeatedly for that, like maybe like five minutes. And uh, finally, um, my dad gets through to her one last time. 
And he says, Michelle, I don't know if you can hear me, but you're the love of my life and I'll love you forever. And that was the last she spoke to him. And um, after that first line got cut out, my mom had called my dad's parents. Um, my dad's parents were are Italian immigrants and like didn't speak great English, especially my, my grandmother. Um, she picked up the phone. She told her what happened. And uh, my nunna starts screaming and turns the TV on, sees what's going on. And my uncle, my dad's brother, woke up to that, that noise. He ran upstairs, saw his mom, my, my grandmother pointing at the TV and just showing what was going on, you know, and my uncle ran to the kitchen, started calling my dad. And he says he probably, he thinks he called like 50 plus times. Um, finally, my dad got picked up the phone. Um, and my uncle was starting law school that week. And uh, he was also interning downtown, but he took that week off. And so they were getting lunch which they never, they were 15 years apart. So they weren't super close when they were growing up. Um, and uh, my dad picked up the phone as if it was like a normal day and just simply said, hello. And my dad, uh, my uncle was like, John, John, like get out. And he just said, Tony, I love you. And, and that was it. And um, that's the last that we know of, of anyone who spoke to him um, that day. Thank you for sharing that. I can't imagine how many times you've had to tell that story. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you know, your day in school and it was a special day, you know, air quotes around that in terms of being able to play video games. Yeah, yeah. Your mom kept you in school. You know, what was her reason for doing that? Did she need some time to herself to absorb the shock? Was she preparing for the difficult days ahead, telling you? Uh, so after the phone calls, um, she started making calls herself. So she started calling um, my my grandmother, her mom, uh, her cousins. There's people from family, friends, friends of my dad that were calling her, asking her if they heard from my dad, if they knew what was going on. Um, and I think within a matter of like maybe a half hour, not even, like there was a million people at my house and they were there throughout the whole day. Uh, they would continue to be there for weeks, months on end. Um, so part of it, I think, was trying to protect us from seeing what was going on in the sense of um, there was a lot of chaos, you know, like not a lot of I have a lot of friends, unfortunately, lost a father or parent on 9-11. Not a lot of them had those phone calls. Not a lot of them had those goodbyes. And so uh, there was just so much unknown and un uncertainty, you know, like there was hotlines that were quickly established, you know, within hours. And so they're calling hospitals. There's people just scattered throughout my house, calling hospitals, calling hotlines, seeing if anyone heard from my dad. And the, the TV was on, of course. So she didn't want us to see all of that, I don't think. Um, and well, not a thing I know. And then I got home from school later that afternoon and I saw everything for the first time. So, uh, and I, and I was very struck by it. Like she's to, to this day, she doesn't remember a lot from those time from those like days after, or in, even in that day, but she remembers that she remembers me coming in and seeing everything and just my reaction to it all. So I, I think she knew she was trying to protect us in, in, in basically her last way and our, her last chance to be able to protect us because she knew everything was going to change. So when you saw the footage from that morning, you were struck by the image of someone falling from the building. What question or questions that trigger in your mind and what goes through a nine-year-old's mind when he sees the image of someone falling to their death and other images from that day as you're still trying to fathom the loss of your father? Yeah, well, I should also preface it with, um, so I think going off my mom, my mom held on to hope that my dad got out. Like she held on for days. Um, she believed that he got out. So um, I think she didn't want me to really see that footage and, and, and she knew how I react. And I'm going to tell you how um, I couldn't fathom what I was seeing. Uh, you know, it's one thing seeing the planes hit. It's one thing seeing the buildings collapse. And cause they showed that in the days after repeatedly that day and only that day uh, did they show an image of someone jumping and I think or falling. Uh, I know for a fact it was on like some live footage when they were showing downtown and everything, but um, I actually found the clip and uh, the original clip that I saw and I couldn't understand why someone was doing that. Cause I'm thinking I, in, in the clip, you see the fire trucks on the bottom of the street. And my thought process was, well, don't they know that someone's coming to save them? Um, quickly that thought process would shift um, and wonder if my dad did that too. Um, I had no idea 
the severity of what had really occurred. You know, like I knew from what I had been told that there was so much time after my dad's building was hit. I'm like thinking he could get out. No one knew that there was no way for them to get out. They're just kind of seeing how bad it was by witnessing people fall into their death. Um, so I, it was just one of those things that I just couldn't really fully grasp or comprehend. To that point, when did you, in your words, embark on the journey to determine whether your dad jumped from 105th floor and why did it matter to you whether he jumped or if he was still in the North Tower when it went down at 1028 a.m.? Um, well, I embarked on that journey at the age of 11. Um, I wanted to know because I wanted to have closure. I thought that's what I wanted, really. I think the reality is like as a kid, like, you know, kids love their dad, right? Uh, boys love their dad. And um, I had a really strong relationship with my father. But like, the thing is, as the time went by, I knew the little details would be told to me. Uh, they were definitely told to me somewhat slowly in the early days after, but knowing more and more and I'm piecing together, okay, I know this call happened, this call happened. And now I'm like, well, what happened then? And I started watching these documentaries um, and I would see all of these families being able to identify their loved ones. So I said, maybe I could do the same. Um, and as a matter of wanting to know, I thought maybe um, in his own way, in its own certain way, if he did do that, maybe it reduced the amount of time that he suffered, um, you know, or uh, maybe like it was just one less minute that he had to be in that building and like go through all that and like, I, I don't know. It wasn't a matter of like, I would look at him differently if he did do it. I just thought it would give me peace of knowing like, when did he actually die? You know? And how long did that journey go on? And were there times when you thought you'd found the answer, but then you realized you hadn't? I mean, the journey went on uh, for, I'm, tw I'm 30 now. Uh, it went on for uh, at least 13 years. Uh, even, and this is after knowing the truth. Um, because I think in some ways, like in the immediate aftermath of going through it and kind of like almost inflicting additional trauma on myself by looking at this stuff, um, I sort of empathize with my dad in a way, in a weird way. I thought that like by living, like watching this occur, watching the plane hit his building, there's only one or two videos of that, seeing the footage as the days, as the minutes are going by in that morning to the moment of the building collapsing, I'm thinking I'm living that final moment with him. You know, something I could, like held on to. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I found out the truth at about probably, I don't know, 19 years old. Um, I should say I knew the truth then because I did when I was like 10 or 11. I did know. But I also, it wasn't directly told to me. And I also didn't really believe it either. Um, but even as I knew the full answers, knew the whole story, it wasn't enough for me. And I, and I know I would have wanted, I still would have wanted more, which I did. One way you thought you'd found the answer was through an uncle by marriage. What did he tell you and what was his motivation? Um, so <clears throat> I would ask my mom, my, my dad's brother, my uncle Tony, um, what they thought, if they thought he jumped and they would tell me no. Uh, every time they would tell me no, but they would also say like why they thought that or why they knew that. My mom wouldn't say, well, it's because I had this phone call with this person who told me what when they had done it, when they went through his autopsy and all this stuff. So this uncle steps in when the rest of my family didn't want to hear about it anymore. And he said to me, yeah, your dad did jump. Um, in reality, he was just doing that to prey on me. He had been grooming me uh, for at least a year and a half prior. Um, and uh, he, he was successful. Um, he told me that uh, he knew I was looking at this footage every day and he also knew was the way to kind of break my, my, my last guard down, you know, and, um, and it worked. And how old were you then? And how long did the abuse continue? So I was 14 when it first happened, it went on, on and off for about a year, just over a year. Um, a lot of it gets kind of blurry to me, but like maybe a year and a half max. Um, you know, it's not a thing where I would see him every weekend or even every week. Like, you know, there'd be months where I wouldn't see him and stuff. So um, I would talk to him a lot though. I talked about what I was looking at, talked to him about the photos I would see and the videos and stuff. And um, uh, he knew 
how vulnerable I was. And he knew that by kind of getting that out of me, like talking to me about that, when he would attempt to do something, like I kind of just would be like shut down. Um, that's like, that's the way I, I sort of analyzed it, you know, like with therapists and stuff, like the trauma just like overtook me where like, I didn't have the ability to fight off anything, you know? Um, and I believed him, like, I believe that my dad did jump. Like, I was like, okay, like hearing those words from him, all it did to me was give me, um, more fuel. And I was thinking to myself, listen, I can find him. I'll find him in one of these photos. Like it may take me years, but I'll find them, you know? So that's, he knew what he was doing. You know, as most predators do. How old were you when you turned to alcohol and drugs? And was it the sort of recreational use that a lot of kids do? Or was there more to it? Uh, well, 14 years old, I had my first drink of alcohol. Um, kind of no surprise that it coincides with everything that I was going through with my uncle. But uh, I was a drinker, like casual recreational drinker. I was a straight A student in high school. So high school, straight A student, drinking on the weekend with my friends, smoking, um, smoking weed. And, uh, by my senior year, yeah, it was becoming a little bit more of like a thing where I would do more excessively when I would drink, but it wasn't a full on problem. Uh, when I got to college, I went to Villanova and, uh, I did my first painkiller while I was there. And within a matter of doing that first painkiller, I was driving to, you know, the hood of Philly every day to pick up. Um, I was quickly addicted to opiates and, um, other drugs too. And, now, that went on for uh, about four and a half years. That, the hard drugs, went on for about four and a half years. So you said you drive to, you know, the, the heart of Philly there to, to get it. You're a college kid. You know, how'd you find them? You just find, go to the corner or there's certain neighborhoods and how'd you pay for them? Um, well, okay. So I had a guy from Villanova who was, uh, you go to school like Villanova and like kids have access to money. So these guys would just try to rip you off. Um, I like to think that I wasn't scared. So I was like, I don't care about driving to, um, to, uh, you know, bad area to go pick up. So he's like, all right, I'm going to come introduce you to my, uh, my dealer. I'm like, okay. I go to the dealer and I'm paying now half the price that I was paying on campus. Um, yeah, I had the ability to just be like going to class, get out of class, go pick up. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, I, I met the dealer and I was like, why would I not do this? It's 25 minutes from school, drive there, pick up and, you know, like the areas I would go to, it would be switched up a lot, but um, it wasn't the worst areas of Philly. The worst areas that I would go to was when I was out of school. Like when I would be home, I'd go to Newark, I'd go to Harlem, the Bronx. Like that was where I was like, I felt more in danger. Um, but uh, in terms of getting the money, I mean, in college, uh, I was selling drugs, but it didn't, not really that much. Like there was times where I would do it, then I'd stop. Um, that was one way I would feel my habit. The main way was lying to my mom. You know, I, I had all these schemes that I pulled off in school, like where I would make fake bank statements and show her that I needed money to buy this at school, like a book, a new program for school, like a class. She, she didn't really, I don't blame her because she would, you would literally think a professional did some of these photoshops. Like I had all the professional stuff downloaded on my computer. If I showed you one bank statement that was downloaded from my chase app versus one that I made, you would not tell the difference, you know? So, um, yeah, I just would lie to everyone, manipulate everyone. I would steal from people, like things like that. Um, when I got out of school, the drug dealing continued. Um, I, then I had access to money by working, but it wasn't enough. I'm going to just switch gears for a moment here and make it on a yeah. little bit of a lighter side. Yeah. You mentioned Villanova. Yep. We didn't talk about this before. My listeners and viewers know I'm a Syracuse grad. I bleed orange. Okay. You know, we're going to have some some issues here come basketball season. Yep. But but one thing I saw uh, one of your photos was a letter that you were proud to receive from, from somebody very famous in the basketball program at, at Villanova. Jay Can you talk us, talk us about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I sent, uh, I sent Jay Wright a copy of my book. Um, you know, like I had a family friend of mine, actually was a friend of my dad's. She is in the sports world. She's like, oh, like, you got to send it to Jay. You got to send it to Jay. I'm like, ah, he's not going to get it. I did. I just sent it to him, like at school, like at the school. I, I didn't have his personal address, nothing. I sent it to him, um, wrote him a little note, and uh, he wrote me back a letter, which I was like stunned to get. And um, it was just saying like, how, you know, that I was doing the actual good thing, the, the Villanova way. You know, I was like, fine, I'm making a change, you know. And like, it's one thing I do take for granted is like I did, or one thing I, I, I regret is taking, taking for granted the time I had at Villanova. 
I have lifelong friends, but like appreciating some of the values of, of, of Villanova and like the things that I was really taught. Um, a lot of it correlates with my dad too. And so um, it's one thing I do kind of regret, but it was nice to get that message and like, you know, hear him saying that he was proud of me and stuff. Well, you're definitely appreciating those values now. Yeah, to say the least. So back to your addiction, you end up in rehab. Mm-hmm. How many times were you there? Uh, I was in two detox facilities within a matter of three and a half months. And then uh, after that second detox, I continued for about two years and then finally got into another one. Um, and that was my last official detox. Um, so I went to three detoxes, one rehab, and then one sober living. So five. And some point along the way, you became suicidal. Mm. What kept you going when, as you said, you wanted to end your life every single day? Well, you know, addiction and alcoholism is a common phrase. It's sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, every day, and, and, and in the literal sense, I'd wake up every day and withdrawal. Uh, opiate withdrawal doesn't kill you, but it feels like the worst possible flu you've ever had. Uh, and there's two things that make it go away, another fix or time. And no one wants to wait out that withdrawal. So um, the easier solution is always the fix. And um, so I got sick and tired of it. It was the, the monotonous lifestyle that I was living, um, trying to figure out how I was going to get more money, who was, who was I going to lie to, who was going to steal from. Um, I just was ashamed of who I had become. You know, things I thought I'd never do, I did. And um, But then there was some part of me that deep down, like, knew it was like the easy way out. Um, something that my dad would, my dad would want me to fight to the end, which I did. You know, I, I, I mean, getting sober was not easy. It's not an easy thing. Um, and I like to say now that my life's become easier, but it's definitely like a daily struggle at times. Um, maybe not the same way when I first got sober, but yeah, I mean, it was hell for me in the first couple months, like the withdrawals, like, um, detox was terrible. Like the other detox I went to, like, I wasn't nearly as bad at that point. So it was like a cakewalk, you know, it was like a, tu- I called it a tune up, like an oil change. I'd get some meds, feel fine. And then be on my way. Um, this time, like my body was shutting down, you know, and if I didn't make a change, like I would either have died from that or, you know, maybe I would have actually pulled it off myself, you know? Um, but I tapped into that, you know, my father a lot in those moments. Um, and trying to have him give me the answers that I was looking for. And when did you hit rock bottom? Uh, July, well, the date that I surrendered, really surrendered, was July 22nd, 2015. My sobriety date July 24, 2015. Um, but that was the day, July 22nd, that I had this spiritual experience, the sign from my dad, that was the that's it moment for me. Um, and I knew I was going to make a change in my life. This was going to be it. Like I knew in my heart that I was going to stay sober once I checked myself into a treatment. Like, I didn't have the desire to keep going with this. Um, but yeah, I had, I mean, listen, I had been arrested. I've been in and out of treatment. Um, with that arrest, I was facing jail time and I failed a drug test, um, which I had two months notice of. And my probation officer told me, literally asked me, she's like, I don't know if this is a sign for help or you generally can't stop. And I said, no, I, I do really want to stop. Um, and she gave me one last shot. She said, come back in one month and you're clean. I'll drop your charges. If not, you're going to go to jail. I said, okay. Went home, um, called out of work and no one was home at my house. I was back home with my mom and uh, I, I made myself a drink, rolled myself up a joint and I walked outside and there it is, you know, getting met with that blue sky, you know, and I started crying hysterically, you know, and um, I literally said, dad, please give me a sign. I need help. And uh, when my dad died, um, my mom was told like the day, the day after she said, um, someone said to her, make sure you look out for the signs. And that night a fly landed on her railing or excuse me, on her nightstand. And um, she took that as my dad. My dad wasn't coming home. But that fly stayed in our house for six months after 9-11. And it was just buzzing around all the time. Wouldn't leave. In the winter, wouldn't leave. And um, 
And throughout the years, we'd always get those visits and that was it. You know, we'd take that as it being my dad. And so fast forward to July 2015, I'm leaning on this railing and I'm crying. And in addiction, I didn't cry, you know, um, and this fly lands on the railing I'm leaning against. And it just like literally s- stays there. And I'm leaning, looking at it, and it's just like moving around in a circle and stopping and moving around in this another circle and stopping. And I'm hysterically crying at this point. Pull out my phone and I recorded it because I just like really wanted to capture that moment. And um, I, I put the joint down. And I said, you know what? I'm done. Walked inside and I called up a treatment center. I said, listen, I am not sober right now. Um, I need a bed tonight. And they said, we can't get you until Friday. I said, okay, fine. I'll take it. And um, gave them my insurance info, got off the phone, wrote my mom this long, long letter. And I admitted to every single thing that I had done in the la- and at that point in two years. You know, she had thought I was doing well for two years, um, at least from drugs. And um, I just admitted to everything. And I said, mom, I'm going to get help on Friday. And she said, I'm so proud of you. And like, that was, that was it. That was a start for me. That was, that was my rock bottom. And that path he chose to sobriety, we know is not an easy one. Yeah. What's enabled you to stay sober? I mean, I have to take it one day at a time. It's, it's, a, it's in some ways a cliche statement, but I really do. And sometimes I have to take it a minute at a time. Um, I do go to a 12-step fellowship. I go to meetings. Um, prayer and meditation are a big part of my life. I do spiritual readings every morning. Uh, and most of all, like, you know, I was told when I got sober, I needed a higher power. And I did not have, I went to Catholic high school, was Catholic, raised Catholic, um, confirmed and everything. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to pick God. I don't want God in my life. And they said, okay, it doesn't have to be God, just anything but you. I said, okay. And I'm like thinking, thinking, I'm like, well, I had this little sign for my dad. So I'm like, I'm going to pick my dad. And so like, that's been the biggest, um, the biggest help for me at times, you know, because uh I get these visits from the fly, you know, I get these moments where I'm like, okay, you know, and um, with praying, you know, praying to my dad, like I sometimes just do it as if I'm talking to like him, like we're talking now, you know, I don't always get on my knees and pray. Like I, I sometimes will just like pull myself aside and close my eyes and talk to him. Um, but, uh, and really, I think one of the other things kind of coinciding that is, is talking about everything. You know, I, I'm so open about everything I went through because I do feel like it helps me to get it off my chest, but I also think it helps someone else. You know, like I can't tell you how many meetings I've been to where like I got up there and talked about the abuse and, you know, like the nine 11 stuff is like one huge part of my life, but there's so much more too. And so many people coming up to me saying like, I went through that too. I never talked about it. I've been sober for 30 years, never talked about it, you know, like, and so like, I do feel like I help people by talking about my, my struggles that, you know, things I went through and, and the fact that I've been able to come to, you know, through on the other side of all of it. How much is recovery from addiction something you just have to do yourself and something that you have to rely on others to get you through it? Uh, it has to start with yourself. You know, like that first time I got, I call it like jammed up. Like I, I my mom saying to me, like, you got to go to detox. You know, um, I told her I was addicted to painkillers. That was March, 2013. You know, I went for another two plus years of struggling and fighting my way through it, trying to figure it out myself before I surrendered it on my own. Um, along the way, my mom would question all the stuff I was doing. Um, she would try to help me in all these different ways, like connecting me to people, trying to get me into another rehab, which I didn't want to go to. And I'd lie my way out of it. Um, and I was an adult. So technically she couldn't do anything. And, uh, at the end of the day, like I had to know in my heart, like this is what I wanted for myself. Like I know if I continued where I was going and the path I was going down, I wouldn't be here today. Like there's no doubt in my mind I wouldn't be here today. I was a few months sober in this detail or in this um, sober living in New Hampshire. And these guys were coming in, like telling me, talking about fentanyl. Like when I got when I started getting involved with opiates, like fentanyl was like these patches that these old guys would get. You know, like that was impossible to get. Um, and they were expensive and like, no, like, it's a, it's a powder and like everyone's dying from it. I never did it. You know, I mean, like I, to my knowledge, I never did it. And like pills when they were fake, they weren't cut with fentanyl. They were cut with filler. Like you wouldn't even get high from it. You know, and these, and I have friends of mine who were like sober telling me like sober only a couple of years saying, yeah, I overdosed on a, on a pressed pill. You know, it's like, they look like the real thing, but they are not. Um, so you have to want to do it yourself. 
you know, and you have to want it for yourself. And um, they say it's not for people who want it or need it, but people who work it, you know, and like, that's it. You got to work it every single day. Um, some days are easier than others. Some days are tough, but, you know, um, it really is a day at a time. And they say that for a reason. Is the process of recovering from the horrible effects of sexual abuse different than recovering from an addiction? Yeah, uh, I definitely correlate that with my addiction too, because, um, you know, that was, uh, when I got sober, I was in rehab, I was, uh, maybe three weeks sober and, uh, I couldn't tell you I would, how many people I was stunned by how many people raised their hand in this one little group we had where people talked about being abused. I was shocked to see some of the like guys that I was like, Oh, this tough guy raising their hand, talking about it. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, it was tough because, um, I wasn't like six years old or seven years old or eight, right. Maybe have some like basic recollection of it, but kind of like suppressed it enough. So there was a lot of like, I felt a lot of shame because I was a little bit older, but then I had talked about that and I've been in recovery from that in a sense. Like I go to, I was going to a therapist for a long time, like trying to work through it, like doing this trauma therapy and stuff. And like that in and of itself is a totally different thing. You know, it's a totally different world and realm because I mean, for a man, um, you know, for me, in my experience, like I'm a heterosexual male to have that happen to you by another man, it, it challenges you and it, and it in a way can damage you because you question your sexuality and all that stuff that comes with it. So, um, I'm confident in the person I am, you know, but, uh, you know, it affected my dating world with women. Like it affected a lot of stuff in my life that I never thought it would. Um, but again, I talk about it. And um, I'm open about it. Like my girlfriend, like she knows everything, you know, um, I don't even, she's gonna have to read my book. Cause I tell her everything anyway. So that's it though. At the end of the day, it's like working through it and, and in a sense, yeah, being in recovery from it, but it does differ from, from addiction in a way. And you just mentioned that challenges you. Yeah. You the sexual abuse that challenges you, obviously the addiction that challenges you. The biggest takeaway for me in terms of who and what you are in your character is resiliency. How'd you develop the resiliency it took to keep going forward with all that's gone on? Well, um, I definitely will credit some of it to my father. Um, but I also think that, um, I, you know, that it's so interesting because like people tell me all the time, like that, I wish I could be as strong as you or like they th- say things along those lines. I never have, I never view myself that way. You know, so you asked me to write, you know, to send you a bio. And like, I have one that like, I wrote for something else a long time ago. And at times, like I read things like that. And I'm like, I don't feel like this, like, I don't view myself like that, but I am that way. Um, and I just think it's just been um, all the stuff sort of compounded onto one another. Um, and in the moment, like I didn't view it as I was fighting through this. I was fighting through this. Like I just, I pushed through it all. Um, and now I can look back and say, I've done it. Um, Whereas, you know, I think we talked about this before, like a lot of people didn't really, never really fully recovered from 9-11. They never fully recovered from being, seeing things or losing someone. Like I know plenty of people um, and just were forever damaged. And uh, not a lot of people always recover from assault or abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and there's so many people that die from alcoholism and addiction. So the fact that I'm here today, I do believe it's for a reason. Um, and so I think that I'm almost doing a disservice to others and myself by not talking about how I've gotten to this point in my life, you know? Um, and I really do believe like talking about our adversities and our struggles and our deepest regrets and our, and the things that challenge us the most things that bother us the most um, things that maybe we let like kind of define us in, in a way they don't have to define us in that negative way, but you can use it as like a positive means for growth, which is how I try to view it now. There's another turning point in your story in which you're no longer a victim and you bring your abuser to justice. Thank God. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, so I'm slowly but surely like talking about it in the sober house. So I'm in the sober house. It's all men. Um, I have this one guy who was like the macho guy, right? All, so it was in New Hampshire. Got a lot of guys from like the streets of Boston, like Charlestown, like all those places in this place, you know, this was like a top place, like not money wise, like it was a known, a well-known program that there was a lot of success from it because they really made you like work, do the work. Um, 
And so uh, this guy gets up and tells a story in front of a room full of 40 guys. And he's like the tough guy. And he's talking about being abused by his uncle. And I was mind blown that he was doing that. But I was more so mind blown by looking around and seeing no one laughing or, or snickering or anything like that. And that gave me the, the strength to start like wanting to talk about it. And I did. But then I got a call from my brother, uh, one of my brothers, who it scared the shit out of me, honestly. Uh, it, it made me... Um, it made me really wonder if something was going to happen to him or to my other brother, my, my youngest brother. I knew nothing happened to my second brother. Um, and uh, I reached out to that uncle and I said, listen, stay away from me and my brothers or I'm going to do, you know, say what happened. Um, he's like trying to, you know, deny the whole thing, whatever. And um, thank God I should preface. Thank God nothing did happen to any, anyone else. Um, and so uh, my sponsor I started working through the steps. I wrote about 150 people on my list. You know, you talk about, you have to work through this list of people that harmed you or that you harmed. And uh, I leave them off the list. At the last possible minute, last day of doing this work, I tell them, hey, you know, there's someone else I left off. The biggest one, of course. And I talked to him about everything. He's like, okay, you need to block his number. Because he was still texting me, you know, and he would text, it wasn't like trying to text me like, oh, I'm proud of you for getting sober. It's like, weird, like perverted stuff. So, um, I, uh, he tells me, listen, when you go home, to, I was going home on an immense trip for four days. He says, uh, you got to tell your mom. I said, okay. So I leave after my drug test on Monday. So I passed your drug, you pass your drug test on Monday. You gotta be back by Friday's drug test. So I leave Monday, get home to New Jersey at like, I don't know, 6 PM. The whole entire week I'm there. I don't do anything about it. And finally Sunday or Friday, excuse me. Um, I'm supposed to meet up with my uncle, Tony, my dad's brother. And, uh, I meet up with a high school teacher of mine. He tells me everything or he, t I tell him everything. He tells me, listen, I've known you for years. You got to talk about this with your uncle. So I call my uncle, Tony, tell him everything. And he tells me he's going to meet me at my house and we're going to tell my mom together. And I was 23 at the time. And, um, obviously I was an adult. New Jersey had just changed the statute limitations. So it was my decision if I wanted to do something about it. Um, and I said, you know what? Yeah, I do want to do something about it. So I started the process and uh, you know, he gets arrested the first time. I couldn't remember my age when it occurred. I couldn't give them the definitive reason why I was 14. So they only charged him with second degree. I go back to New Hampshire. I remember how I was 14 years, like why I knew I was 14 when it happened. They make me fly back home. I tell them the whole story. They arrest him again, this time charge him with first degree. And this process now, this is February of 2016. And um, we're going, we go to June and they keep delaying everything. And finally they tell him, tell me, we're going to offer him a plea deal. We'll get 10 to 15 years. I said, okay, that was wrong. The plea deal would only give him five to seven years max. And so um, they pushed the sentencing from June, 2016 to September, 2016. Uh, September 16th. So like literally five days after 9-11. And, um, you know, I go up in, in the courtroom, like we had him on a recorded line. I, I, I say me and the FBI, cause like they had me in the victim's unit room. Little kids would be like, you know, like little tiny children chairs. And I got him on a recorded line admitting to everything. Um, and in my opinion, the prosecutors kind of fumbled the case. Um, cause he should have been away for 20 plus years. And, uh, Finally, they said, you know what, what we're going to do the plea out. They did it. And they only charged, like he was convicted on second degree assault. And um, it was really up to my performance in the, in the courtroom and my mom and my uncle Tony. And we all gave like empowering and very powerful um, uh, speeches. And the judge sentenced him to seven years. And um, he got out in like four and a half. He got out a week before my book came out ironically enough. And, uh, yeah, he's been out for now just over two years. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, it's one of those things that I knew I needed to do it. Um, but then again, like it was my first year of sobriety. Uh, so there's part of me that was like, shoot, I should have taken it to trial. You know, he would have got, he could have been away for 40 years with all the different counts, you know? Um, but then there's part of me that's like, you know what I do what I needed to do. And sort of save myself from, you know, inflicting more trauma on myself too and going through that whole period. And then there's the risk that he 
gets acquitted and um then what you know but yeah he's a registered sex offender he's on lifetime probation so um yeah uh i knew i needed to do it and i did it and you know yeah you talked about your book when did you start writing and when did you decide to turn your writing into a book started writing at the age of 11 um journaling and then uh, throughout college, in high school, I read a lot of poetry. And then college, I didn't do much creative writing. It was just all college stuff, um, college essays and all that, whatever. Um, when I got sober, I started to write again. And as I was going through all this stuff, I started to really like just write all these experiences. I started speaking at high schools, and I wasn't getting paid for it. And when I would get paid for it, it wasn't a lot of money. And... Um, you know, they pay me like a hundred bucks and like, give me lunch to come speak to these kids, you know? And so someone said to me, you should really write a book. And I was like, I have no idea where to start with that. But I just started writing the stories out, you know, one by one. And um, uh, so from like um, during the, the time of like the sentence and getting pushed out and everything, it was like June, 2016. I, I started writing some stories and then um, I finished the first draft in uh, May of 2017. And um it took a long time to get it published. I mean, I got my, my book deal in February of 2020 and then a month later COVID hit. So we didn't know what was going to happen. I, I was talking to my publisher. They were like, we don't know what to do yet. Like I said, why don't you push it for 2021? It could be a 20th year anniversary. And they said, no, you know what? We want to put, we want to publish it for, for, for 20, uh, 2020 because of COVID and it'll be inspirational. I said, okay. And I'm honestly glad that they did that because, um, my book was the first child story told by a child in an 11 and there was more to come in the, in the next year for the 20th anniversary. So I'm glad we did that, but um, yeah, so that was, that was that process. So what's the title of the book and where can our listeners find a copy? Yeah, Sorry. Uh, title is sway. Um, I actually did just sell out on Amazon. At least the paperback did. Um, you can find it on Amazon. Most Barnes and Nobles have it. A lot of the independent bookstores have it. Um, it's on Audible, Kindle, and anywhere you buy your books, you, you should be able to find it. And what about the 9-11 Museum? It is at the 9-11 Museum as well, yes. Good good point. So, and I think it's the only book there by a child? Well, maybe not for the 20th. It should honestly be. No, I think it is because uh, they didn't get it in there until uh, about maybe like six, seven months ago. So they vet every single book they put in that museum, and that gift shop is vetted. I sent them the book when the, when it came out and we went back and forth for over a year trying to get things finalized. So, um, yeah, so, but it's, it's definitely there. Well, that's a tremendous accomplishment. Congratulations to that. Thank you. So that being said, what's next for you? And as you focus on continuing to write, what's your next project going to be? Um, well, I've decided, well, I'm speaking at schools, uh, organizations, but primarily high schools and, and colleges right now. Um, corporate stuff is actually finally coming in and um, and I'm shifting my story to how they want me to tell it, you know, but uh, really um, in terms of a second book, I've been debating doing a sequel. I've been debating doing a prequel, um, but uh, I've been doing a lot of independent, like freelance stuff, like articles, like sobriety based articles, things like that. Um, but I am debating still like, maybe writing that book proposal and sending it out to publishers and, and agents again and, and seeing what happens. But um, really the, the speaking engagements is really what I find the most passion. I, mean, I love to write. I do it so much of my free time anyway. Um, but the, the speaking is really where I, f- I feel like I'm making, I, I can see the impact I'm making, you know, where someone buys my book, they read it. If they, even if they're, they hate it or they love it, I don't always know, you know, so now everyone leaves a review on every book they write. So um but that's where I see myself going with this. And if somebody wants you to come speak at their company, their school, their university, where can they find you? My website, which is uh, a little wordy at times, but it's Matthew John Bocci, B-O-C-C-H-I.com. We'll be sure to put that on our social media platforms as well so they can reach out to you. Thank you. The loss of a loved one under traumatic circumstances, whether an accident or murder, often traps the survivors in a cycle of how they died rather than how they lived. What have you learned about remembering your dad for how he lived instead of focusing on his death of that tragic day? 
My dad was 38. Uh, he lived life to the fullest. You know, he, he accomplished the things he wanted to accomplish. Um, and uh, he did it in a short period of time. And I mean, his legacy lives on through myself and my brothers. And um, I, I think I said this to you too. Like, I, I feel like he would be disappointed in the fact that I focused on his death for so long, not his life. Um, because he would want to be remembered by the life he lived and the fact that, um, you know, that we're all here, like his whole family's still here, like, and they keep his name alive and his legacy alive. And um, I think it's important, you know, because we sometimes kind of focus too much on the actual loss rather than like the life that they really lived. And that's how I try to live my life today. And, and especially when I, I think about him and his death. We have just a few minutes left in our conversation. What parting advice do you have for audience especially those who are going through the hell of addiction or coping with a crushing loss so they can persevere through adversity and come out the other side. When it comes to addiction, um, don't ever give up, you know, and when you know it in your heart and you know, you have a problem, just make that, take that first step, pick up that phone call, pick up that phone and make that first call and and, and start making that change, you know? Um, Because I'll tell you like as, as painful as you may think it is and as hard of a road as it is, it does get better. Um, and the life I live today and, and, and lead today, um, is certainly a testament to my sobriety. I would not have any of the things in my life that I do if I was not sober. I know that for a fact. Um, in terms of a loss, I mean, my dad died 21 years ago. Um, and the craziest thing is I think it took me for the book coming out, you know, to me, to view his death and, um, that day as a, a way to celebrate his life, you know? Um, it's impossible to escape 9-11. It's impossible to escape the footage and all that stuff. But this year, I think, honestly, was the first time I have not seen. I didn't see anything on that day. I didn't look at the TV once. I didn't look at my phone, nothing. Um, and I tell you, man, like, it didn't even feel like 9-11 that day. It felt like just another day. Besides all the people texting me and they say, oh, and it's amazing getting those texts and it's so nice and everything. But it's also so nice to just kind of be there with my family. And that's what we did. Like, I was with my whole dad's family and my family. And we celebrated him and, and talked and told stories about him. And, and, and that's how he'd want to be remembered. And that's how I think all of our loved ones want to be remembered. You know, not by their death. Tragic, not tragic. It's always, it's always painful. So. And again, the title of the book is Sway. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other independent booksellers. And also the website to have... MacMan speak is Matthew John Bocci, B-O-C-C-H-I dot com. Matthew Bocci, author of Sway, you have a heartbreaking and yet inspiring story of resilience and survival in the most difficult circumstances. I really want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Chris. It means a lot. No, the pleasure and honor is mine. I truly appreciate it. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.